Welcome to the Scotts Hill Podcast, Tuesday Theology Edition. At Scotts Hill, one of our core values is studying God's Word. So on Tuesday nights, our pastors teach a class focused on topics within systematic theology. They do this to equip our people with the right knowledge of God. This podcast is a recording of that teaching session. Enjoy! So glad to see you here tonight. I just want to say welcome back to our Tuesday Theology class. This is our fifth week. You are finishing five sessions so far, and we only have 27 more to go. And uh, But I was thinking about that this week. I was thinking, wow, 27 more classes on dealing with theology. And we know that there's going to be some attrition when we come to a class this size that people are going to fall off. They're going to get busy with other things. We did schedule our breaks in such a way where we're trying to go about 12 to 13 weeks then it'll give you the whole month of December off, then we'll jump back into it in January. But um, one of the things I want us to know is that when we're dealing with theology and we're dealing with doctrine and you're working through some very heady issues, you're having to think, you're having to work, you're having to challenge maybe even some dr- traditional things that you have been taught And now as you're looking at God's Word and you're beginning to study God's Word, you're beginning to see some things a little bit differently. And it's going to open up your heart and your mind to understanding some things about the nature of God that maybe you've never known before. And one of the things that we have to see that it may be and feel like a very daunting task. It's kind of like cleaning up your yard after a hurricane has come through. You know, the trees are down, the debris all over the place. You walk out, the wind is still there, it's humid. You're looking at your yard and you feel overwhelmed because you know everything you have to do. And it would be better for you to say, you know what, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to hire somebody to come in my yard and clean up this mess for me. But you decide to take on the task, and you know what it is. You pull out the chainsaw, you go buy one, or you rent one, or you steal one from your neighbor. You do whatever you can, and then you start cutting up the debris. You start hauling it off, and then little by little, your yard gets clean, and then you look at it, and then you recognize, wow, I was able to tackle this big job. When you're dealing with theology and doctrine, you're going to have to wade through some stuff, work through some stuff, commit yourself to saying, I really want to understand this. We're here to help one another as we walk through this time and as we dig into the the depths of God's Word. Now, the other thing that we know is this. You're going to walk through it. You're going to learn some things. But even after 27 weeks or 34 weeks of theology, you're still not going to know everything there is to know about God. We're never going to get there. Matter of fact, I I read a quote some years ago, and I love this quote, and here's what it says. It says, do we have it up here? The Word of God is so deep that theologians will never reach its depths, but so shallow that infants will not drown. I love that. Because the Word of God is, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, we see the clarity of God's Word, the necessity of God's Word, and that every one of us can learn and we can grow from that. Now, here's another thing I want to tell you before we jump in, is that theology can never be separated from my life or my Christian um, objective and activities. Right thinking always leads to right living. And so if I think rightly, those things are going to be connected to my Christian life. There's always a danger when you're studying theology for head knowledge only. 
Because what that does is that puffs you up. But if you're looking at theology to to understand God's word and to communicate God's word with other people, it becomes a part of life and practice. And what happens is that theology helps you to grow in a deeper relationship and a devotional walk with the Savior. You're going to learn more and more about him. But also, when we see that human discoveries are happening all around us, and we know that God is the author of all life and all rules of the universe, then we recognize how that gives us great confidence in God. Even when there are archaeological finds, it leads us to the place that we can trust that God's word is true. Somebody sent me this article this week. The article says, Fire and brimstone, Sodom and Gomorrah, perhaps destroyed by cosmic fireball. All they had to do is read in Genesis, and they would have discovered that. But what they do is they go through this observation, and what they discovered was a fireball that hit around Sodom and Gomorrah and the plains of that area and about 3,650 years ago, and it wiped out all the inhabitants of that valley. And they're finding large deposits of salt and sulfur and all the things that God's Word says. And um, so when you find these kinds of things and you're studying these truths and you see God's word says this and then archaeologists come along and find and discover and confirm what God has already said 5,000 years ago. So these are the things that we can be encouraged by. And I want to encourage you by that. Let this theology become a part of your life. Let it become a part of how you think about God. Now, we began last week by talking about the incommunicable attributes of God. Speaking of attributes, we began with the incommunicable attributes of God. The incommunicable attributes of God speak about how God is different from us, if you remember. These are the things that God does not share with respect to his attributes of who we are and who he is. And we saw last week that there were five of them. You remember that he is incommunicable in his independence. God does not need you. God does not need me any more than I need my dog, Ziggy, to survive. I don't need Ziggy. I can go to work without Ziggy. I can cook without Ziggy. I can mow my grass without Ziggy. Now, Ziggy might give me some delight, but I don't need him to survive. Now, my wife, that's a different story. I can't even get dressed without her. So um, those God does not need us. He's completely independent. God is unchangeable. His immutability means that he does not change. Now, we get confused by that, don't we? Because we think it seems like God's changed his mind, but more often than not, the circumstances have changed. And God is committed to do what he has always done. And if his goal is to people to repent and turn from him, and they repent and they turn to him, and they repent and turn to him, then God's goal was that they would repent and turn, and therefore he blesses and rewards them accordingly. So we see that. And then his eternality. God is eternal. Now, you and I will live for eternity, but we have not existed for eternity. God has always existed, and he always will. In his omnipresence, he is all places at one time. In his unity, I love this, all of his attributes are equal. One is not greater than the other. How many of you have ever taken a temperament test? You know, those temperament tests. Some of you, how many of you are extroverts? 
You're really outgoing. You're out there in the crowd. How many extroverts? Not many in this crowd. Wow. How many of you are introverts? You don't even want to raise your hand. You're so introvert. So what, what happens is we take these tests and what we find is that we score differently. I like, like on my um, extrovertedness, I am like 98 and 100. On the, the uh, temperament aspects of the introverts, I'm really low. So there's no balance. But with God, there's a perfect balance in every single attribute. His love is not greater than his wrath. His wrath is not greater than his mercy. He's equal all across. We don't even know where we are from day to day, but God is always the same. Now, as we're looking at these, these attributes, or as we're looking at these um, the attributes of God, the one thing that God says to us very clearly in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 25, he asks this question. He says, to whom then will you compare me? that I should be like him, says the Holy One. And then in Isaiah chapter 46, verse 5, he says, To whom will you liken me and make, my, make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? It is so important for you and me to understand that God is not like us. Here's the question I have for you before we begin. What encouragement do you get by knowing that God is not like you. What encouragement do you get in knowing that God is not like you? Come on, you're about to confess some of your own weaknesses and flaws here. You're on tape for everyone to see. You're on the internet, so just feel free to go ahead and let everybody know. Anybody want to answer that? Yes, Mark. Amen. That he doesn't hold grudges. Because his, his sin, he forgives our sins as far as the east is from the west. Now, this is Mark. I just want you to know today, do not offend him in any way. He will not forget it. Someone else. He doesn't get tired at the end of the day. That's right. God is never weary. He has patience. He has patience. He is patient. Aren't you glad for his patience? And that his patience is not determined by your impatience with him? What else? He's not fickle. He's not, fickle. He's not he is settled. <laughs> and that we don't have to, if he's immutable, he doesn't change by just whims and attitudes. Let me ask you this. If God were just like you, would you find it difficult to worship him? Yeah, I know me better than anybody else. People will say sometimes, Phil, you seem to have it all together. I say, no, you don't live with me 24-7. I do, and so does Chris. And so I don't have it all together, and none of us does, but God does. And when we can rest in the peace and the confidence that he is so unlike us, it gives us great confidence in that he is stable and steady and can be trusted. So one of the things that we're going to do tonight is we want to continue to look at the attributes. And here, here's another question I want to ask you. So far in your study, as we've been looking at the attributes of God, what has encouraged you in looking at who God is, even from to, the, tonight's study? 
even from looking at what you've poured over this past week and preparing for tonight, or poured over today and preparing for tonight, what are some things about God's attributes that have encouraged you? Somebody, just... God's in absolute control. Yeah. He is faithful. That means he's going to carry out what he says he's going to do. Perfectly complete. Lacking in nothing, is he? Nothing. He's holy. And we're going to talk about what that means tonight. What else? Trustworthy. Corinne, do you have anything? You were sharing with me some things before. Okay, had some, some wrong assumptions in her head about God, and this has clarified that for her. Let me tell you, let me tell you what studying the attributes have done for me. And, and this is an, an incredible statement, not because I came up with it, but here, here's what I came to see, and I wrote it down. Here's what I wrote. God is such that you and I can never over-exaggerate his goodness and his greatness. Think about that. How many of you are prone to exaggeration? I'm a pastor. I am, so I can raise my hand. I'm a preacher. My wife always says, you exaggerated that. Yeah. Sometimes we can exaggerate some things, can't we? We can embellish some things. Can you ever exaggerate the goodness of God? Can you ever come up with adjectives that are quantifiably adequate for his nature? No matter what words we come up with, no matter how we boast about his goodness and his greatness, you and I can never over-exaggerate that. So when we're talking with one another about the goodness of God and the greatness of God and the compassion of God and the kindness of God, you and I can't even comprehend how great that is. And there are no books and no words available for us to be able to grab hold of the reality, wow, of our great God. And if you can even hang on to that and recognize that in your prayer life, there is no way God would ever say, oh, you're over-exaggerating now. God would say, oh, if you only knew. If you only knew. And so what we're going to do tonight is we're going to look at those communicable attributes. Boy, this was a long chapter, wasn't it? And the way we're going to do it tonight is I'm just going to break them down the way Wayne Grudem does in the book. And we're going to go through each one. I'm going to clarify some statements, maybe can help you in your mind, and then ask some questions. And we're going to have this engagement. So I am assuming that you have read it. We're going to go over it. And then we're going to ask questions about what that means to us and how those attributes are actually communicable to us. But let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have revealed yourself to us as to who you are. And Father, you have given that to us through words to help us to understand your nature, your being, to understand who you are morally. Father, your purposes in the world and how you work within humanity. And Father, as we look at these attributes that flow straight from your word, enable us, Father, to see something tonight, not just to learn, which is very important, 
but Father, to apply these in a way that helps us to see you like we've never seen you before. Thank you for those who are here, those who are watching online. I pray, Father, that you would bless this time in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Grudem breaks them down into five different areas. And so we're going to break those together. But before we do, I want to share one scripture with you, which is the intent of God's heart, even when he created humanity. Do you know that even when God created us, he created us for the purpose to be image bearers of him? We find this in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So it's a clear picture that God has created every one of us to be image bearers of his. That means we are to display the likeness of God on earth. Now, here's the reality. This happened before the fall, obviously. But even after the fall, even after sin, God did not remove the image-bearer nature of humanity. Even in sin, we're still image-bearers of God. Now, that image may be defaced, that image may be distracted in some ways, but the image is still there. And God's intention is that we would be his image-bearers as we go through our lives, that other people would get a glimpse of some of the attributes of God even in our lives. Now, because of sin, that will not happen perfectly. But for those who are in Christ, we have been made new what? Creation. For all who are in Christ are new creation. The old is past, the new has come. So with this new creation and our spirits being made alive and the Holy Spirit living within us and us bearing the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, we have the opportunity to, in a clearer way, display the image of God within us. And so when we look at the attributes in a way that Wayne Grudem breaks them down, I, I, I had some difficulties with some of the ways he broke them down. Did any of you? You know, some of them I really had to struggle through and I thought through them and we're going to work through these together and um, come to some conclusions together. There's no perfect way to do that because there's so many attributes of God that we're not fully going to capture but here's what we're going to do. We want to look at the way that he broke them down because I think it's pretty helpful. He begins by saying the attributes describing God's being. And he speaks specifically about two of those. First, he speaks of spirituality. He says, God is spirit. John chapter 4, verse 24, Jesus is confronting the woman at the well, a Samaritan woman, and he says to her that God is spirit. Now, God is spirit. Now, let me ask you this. What's the difference between saying God is spirit and God is a spirit? Somebody tell me the difference between the two. Okay. A spirit can only be at one place at one time. Satan is a spirit. Angels are a spirit. They are spiritual beings. They can only be in one place at one time. But God is spirit, which means that he's everywhere at once. Remember we saw last week about his omnipresence. So the truth is this, God is spirit. But because he's spirit, you remember what we read, is that God doesn't have a physical body like you and I do. 
Now, sometimes this is confusing because anthropomorphism is used through the scripture where it's said that of God's hands, of God's right arm, of God's face. You know, we see images in a way that God's communicated at times to be seen as though he has a body. But God has no body like you and I have. God is not made up of anything like anything else in all of creation. He is spirit, but God can manifest himself because we see at times in the Old Testament that manifestation of that, and that's going to lead to this second point. But the fact that God is spirit and he doesn't have a body, sometimes when we try to think of God, we always think of him in human terms, don't we? And so when you close your eyes to pray, what images come to your mind if you're praying to the Father? I don't know. It's kind of hard, isn't it? Sometimes we we see a person maybe like a, a grandfatherly figure or we see maybe just a force. And we're going to talk about how to pray in a minute when we're dealing with that. But the reality is God is spirit. He's not confined to any body. In fact, God is offended when you and I try to fit him into some form that we know from humanity or from nature. Let me give you an illustration. Remember in Exodus 32, Moses is on a mountain. He's been gone for 40 days and 40 nights. He's been with God. God has written with him, given him the Ten Commandments. The people of Israel are confused. They're worried. Where is Moses? We need some visible representation from God to lead us out of this wilderness. So they say to Aaron, Aaron, make us a golden calf. Now, it's interesting. In the Hebrew, it's not a calf. It's a young bull. And they want to make a bull. And so Aaron makes this bull. And as he makes this bull, they say, this is the God that has brought us up out of Egypt. Now, Did this golden bull just bring them out of Egypt? No. Most scholars believe this, that they were attempting to try to honor God in the form of some kind of being, and this was a bull. And by doing so, it offended God. And it offended God for a number of reasons. Number one, it completely distorted the character of who God is. How can God's character be captured in a bull? It cannot. The bull for the Egyptians was an incredible image because it meant strength and honor. But there is no strength and honor to be captured of God in a bull. Secondly, it diminished his attributes. It limited them to only those that can be found within this image. And here's the third thing. It deceived all of Israel. The next day they had a feast and a celebration which led to gross immorality and sin because that led... You know, the second commandment forbids us to worship God by the use of any images because what we do with an image, we always limit the reality of who God is. And so God is spirit, and we're to worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, the question comes to this. How is this a communicable attribute to you and me? God is spirit. How does that relate to you and me, that God shares that attribute with us? What's that? 
Okay? Yeah. Are we spiritual beings? We are. When you die, does your spirit die? It doesn't. Every person in this room will live forever. The question always begs is where will we spend eternity? That depends on what we do with Jesus Christ. But just as God is spirit, we also have a spirit. And we relate to the spirit in our spirit. Now, we're going to talk about salvation later, but one of the things that we know is that every one of us, we are born spiritually dead. And we see that in Ephesians chapter 2, and we'll get into that later. But we can share that attribute because every one of us are spiritual beings. And as I said earlier, God existed for all of eternity. We don't, but we will live for eternity. So there's that spiritual side. And then here's the one that was a real struggle. Invisibility. It means God's total essence of all of his spiritual being will never be able to be seen by us. Yet God still shows himself to us through visible, creative things, especially in Jesus Christ. I just shortened that. Okay. So God is invisible. We will never fully be able to see him. But the finest representation of God for humanity is the Lord Jesus Christ. You remember what Jesus said? He said, if you have seen me, you have seen who? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And we see that he is the exact likeness of God, the radiance of his glory. So in the Lord Jesus Christ, we get a picture of the character of God. Now, he is invisible, and there are a lot of things we don't see about him, but here's a wonderful thing. Scripture tells us one day we will see him face to face. We will see him as he is, and we will not be able to comprehend the glory and the joy of who he is and what he is like in all of eternity. Now, I thought about this and saying, okay, if this is invisibility is an attribute of God, how is that a communicable attribute to you and me? How is it that God's invisible, but he demonstrates himself to be visible through certain means, but how does that relate to you and me? Does anybody have the answer for that? Because I've been wondering all day. Anybody? Our spirit is invisible? Our spirit is invisible? Okay. Okay, yeah, that's good. The, those who have died, the saints who have gone and with the Lord, they're invisible to us, but they haven't ceased to exist, have they? They're in the presence of the Lord. Here's what I was thinking today. In a sense, all of us are invisible to one another in certain ways. There are certain things about you that nobody sees except God. There's certain things that go on in your heart, in your soul, in your mind. I was, I was watching the news before I came up here, and there was a couple that was just arrested because they were spies. And they were selling top-secret um, information about our nuclear subs to another country. And here's what the neighbors were saying. We never suspected that. They, they were, we thought they were like us. We never in a million years thought they were spies and enemies of our country. Isn't that true of all of us in a way? There's certain things that we don't show to one another, and there's certain things that we see that are visible with one another. And boy, we could put on a facade, can't we? 
And then inside of us, we're dying, but the wonderful thing is the Father and the Spirit of God knows all that's going on. And so in that way, we can see their invisible attributes of those things, uh, but we also see the visible ones. So this is kind of one of those harder ones to grab hold of. But here's the truth. Is there anything about you that God does not know? Is there anything that you can ever keep secret from God? Do we live in our way, our lives in a way sometimes where we think he can't see us? Somebody asked me this question. What would you do if Jesus followed you around 24-7? How would you be different? Would you change the things that you watch on television? Would you be careful the way that you lash out at drivers on Market Street? The reality is, the distance from heaven to where you are makes no difference in his presence with you. And he's here. And so in those ways, we can be reminded that that he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And the wonderful thing is this, the Holy Spirit doesn't say, well, you know what, you go ahead and commit that sin. I'm going to stay right over here, and when you're done, then I'm going to come back and join you. He never leaves us. So in the midst of that, we're always encouraged to keep watch of our thoughts, our actions, and our deeds. Here's the second section, okay? He talks about the the being, but now he talks about his mental attributes. And the mental attributes talk about three specific areas. And he says our knowledge. Knowledge. He, He calls it omniscience. You and I are certainly not omniscient. God is. But there's something that we can know. God fully knows himself and all things actual and possible in one simple and eternal act. Now, I like this because he breaks these down. I've got them highlighted because they're very important. When he says the thing's actual, that means God knows all things in creation. There's nothing he doesn't know. He knows all the laws of thermodynamics. He knows all the laws of gravity. He knows all the laws of planetary motion. He knows all the laws of the coefficient of thermal expansion. I don't even know what that is. I just made that up. But he knows everything. There's nothing he doesn't know. And he knows all things actually. But secondly, he knows all things that are possible. Here's the thing that blows my mind. God knows every potential outcome of every potential choice that every person can make. Can you imagine that? He knows everything. He knows everything. He knows what could happen if I make this choice or if I make this choice, I make this choice. And half the time, we don't even know what choice we want to make. But God knows all of those things. That just blows my mind of the vastness of his knowledge. But he also knows them in simple. That means this. Knowledge is not divided by God. God does not have to sit sit there and think, okay, wait a minute, wait a minute. What did I say about that 5,000 years ago? Let, let, Let me pull that up. No. At every single moment, God knows everything about everything. And it's always there. He doesn't even have to take any medication to bring back the memory like we do. You know, what is that, Prejudin, 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 something? See, I, I, I need it because I forgot how to pronounce it. So God knows all things, and then it's an eternal act. Here's the thing. God's knowledge never changes. Does God 
ever grow in his knowledge? Is there anything new for God to learn? Nothing. So when we talk about this communicable attribute of knowledge, we can see that, boy, we can't really be completely like these attributes, can we? That he is so vast in his knowledge that it's nothing he can learn because he already knows it all, and he knows it all the time, and it never slips his memory. So the question for the knowledge that I would, I would ask is, if that's the case, how do we share this attribute with God? How does knowledge and this attribute impact us? How are we like that? Okay, we have knowledge that's revealed from God. Can we learn? Yeah. What's that? Yeah, it's humbling. The thing is this, can we know God? Yeah. We can know him. We can develop a relationship with him. We can know each other. We can learn. We can grab hold of valuable information. We have the capacity to be able to have cognizant understanding of the world around us. We can retain this information. We can use this information and we can use it to tell others about his greatness. So the knowledge that God has, is ne we're never gonna have that kind of knowledge, but he has created us to know him and to be intellectual beings that can grasp even some difficult truths of the universe. So we can know him. What about wisdom? I love this one. God always chooses the best goals and the best means to those goals. His wisdom is perfect. He always chooses the best goals and the best means to those goals. Can you imagine? God never makes a mistake. He never says, oops, shouldn't have done that. He never says, well, you know what? I've just learned from that poor choice. Most of us learn good choices from bad choices, don't we? But God never does that. Every single thing he does is perfectly wise. Now, I want you to think the wisdom in nature. I want you to think about the wisdom and how God created things. What are some of the intricacies of nature that blows your mind? The way the moon causes tides. Okay. The gravitational pull and the effect of the moon on our tidal systems. Yeah. Somebody else said something. Photosynthesis. Photosynthesis, yeah. Talking about from the leaves of plants and all of the things that take place there and the, the carbon dioxide that's put off and the oxygen that is given to us. Yeah. What else? Yeah, yeah, fish are the only ones that I know that go to schools. Other than that, all the other animals, the instincts that God has given to them. I mean, a woodpecker pounding on a tree 
I mean, and, and the mechanism in a woodpecker's brain is amazing, the shock absorbers that that bird has and that God created, it just came to my mind, I don't know, just how God created that. And you think about all the different intricacies. What about the laws of physics? What are some other things? What about the human body? Yes. Yeah. And by the way, Vic is a scientist. He's in the back row there. He can answer all of your questions of the intricacies of the universe afterwards. The sun. Somebody said a couple last week, maybe, the, gra- the, 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 the alignment of the planet, the right tilt on the axis, the right distance, the w- speed at which the planet turns, any faster we'd be crushed, any slower we'd float. I mean, everything is perfect in wisdom. God has created all of that. It just blows my mind when we think about the wisdom of God. Now, the question is that you and I share that attribute. What are some things that we know from Scripture about wisdom for ourselves? How do we gain that wisdom? Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. What else? James, ask for wisdom and he will give to those who ask. Yeah. That's right. Wisdom is the application of knowledge. Anybody can have knowledge. There are a lot of intellectual idiots in the world. But wisdom is different. Wisdom is the application of that knowledge in a way that models and honors the heart of God. How about truthfulness? He is the true God. And that all his knowledge and words are both true and the final standard of truth. That he is true. Every word God says is true. And he's faithful. The truthfulness talks about the reliability of what he says. Faithfulness talks about the fact that he will carry it out. And that he is truthful and that we can trust that. John 17, 3 says... This is eternal life, that you might know the only true God and his son whom he has sent. And so God's truthfulness, and we can trust his truthfulness. That means this, that you and I are to live our lives with truthfulness. Now, how is that to be modeled in our life? This communicable attribute of truthfulness of what God is, how are we to live that in our lives? What does that mean for us? as we live our life, when it comes to the aspect of truthfulness. Is it important that we walk in truth? Somebody said something? Okay, walk, seeking truth. How about this? Everything God says is true. God doesn't say anything haphazardly. He doesn't say anything sarcastically. He doesn't say anything in Scripture that is just a possibility. So when I think about the truthfulness of God, then I think that I need to be very careful by the way I measure my words. Have you ever purposefully said something that was untrue? Raise your hand. Okay. 
Have you accidentally said something that was untrue? Raise your hand. Have you done both of those in the same time? Raise your hand. God never does that. There's never a time where anything he has ever said is untrue or he doesn't know. So what that does is that convicts me of just simply this. If that is a communicable attribute and God wants me to walk in truthfulness, I need to be very careful about what I say. Let me ask you this. Do we live in a truthful world? Boy, that was a resounding answer. (laughs) We don't. Just turn on the news. And it just depends on which news station you listen to. You know, and everybody's got their source of authority. But the thing is this, our only authority should be the truthfulness of what God has to say. So these are the things that deal with those um, mental attributes. Now he gets into the moral attributes. And the moral attributes, he gives six specific things that are communicable. And these we could probably grab hold of a little easier. Goodness. God is the final standard of good and that all that God is and does is worthy of approval. God is the final standard of what's good and everything he does is approved. Who's it approved by? Himself. God approves of himself. This is one of those circular arguments again, okay? So God is approving of himself. But here's the thing. The standard for everything that is good and that is right comes from the Father of lights. And we see that God is perfect in all of his goodness. Now, when we talk about his goodness, we're talking about two specific things that he lumps into there. He talks about mercy and he talks about grace, right? Somebody tell me the difference. How would you define or how does Grudem define mercy? What is mercy? What is mercy? Okay, goodness shown towards people who are in maybe a desperate situation or they're in misery. God's mercy. What are some illustrations in Scripture where you see God's mercy? I'm sorry, what? Okay, that's actually the next part of it, but hang on to that. You're transitioning for me, and we'll get right there. But that uh, some illustrations of mercy. Do you, did Jesus ever show mercy to people? Who are some people that Jesus demonstrated mercy to? That was goodness for those people who were suffering or were in disgust stress or were miserable okay woman at the well mary thief on the cross how about the sick blind lame demon possessed jesus showed kindness and mercy to those people now what is grace there you go grace is unmerited favor. In other words, it is goodness shown to people who don't deserve it. Well, we see a lot of pictures of that in the scriptures, don't we? Who did Jesus show grace to? Well, look in the mirror. All of us. And then that's the difference between mercy and grace. And grace is God's unmerited favor. He gives us his goodness even though we don't deserve it. Now, here's the crazy thing. God says that he shares this 
character with us, this attribute. Which means that if we're going to demonstrate goodness to people, there's always mercy and there's always grace. Is it hard to demonstrate mercy to people who are hurting, but you assume that their own sinfulness led them there? Is it difficult to show grace to people who would not give you the time of the day? See, the thing is this, if we're going to be like Jesus and we're going to be like God in this, these are the opportunities for us to walk with mercy, to be able to demonstrate kindness to people. Have you ever done any, there was a book written many years ago, Random Acts of Kindness. Have you ever had the opportunity to do something like that? Just to, to do something for somebody you didn't even know and they didn't even know you did it? Yeah? It's a great thing. Chris and I, there was a time when we would go out and we would just pick somebody in a restaurant and say, okay, we're going to pay for their meal. I remember we did that with a, a young couple that happened to be from this church. And then they found out. And then what they did was they ended up buying somebody else's meal that night in a restaurant. So we don't know how far that went. But I remember doing this for a little lady one time at a gas station. She was behind me. I stopped to get gas. We were on our way to Louisiana or something coming back. I don't remember what it was. And I looked back there, and she was in her Sunday best. It was a Sunday. We were traveling on a Sunday. So I didn't go to church that day. So we're traveling on the road, and she's got her little Sunday clothes on, and she's a little African-American lady. She's, I mean, she is decked out, and she's got some little goodies. And I got up there to the front, and I told the lady, I said, I want to I buy her her items. Well, do you know her? I don't know her. I've never seen her before in my life. That is so sweet of you. I said, look, I want to buy it, but whatever else she gets, I want to, I want to be able to pay for it as well. So I'm just going to give you some money and you just take care of it. And uh, so she pay, I paid for all that when she got up there and she had the money for that. And so we were sitting in the car and I was wanting to watch her. So it's kind of like one of those things, you know, I should have just driven off, but I'm watching her. She gets up there. The lady at the cash register tells her, she says, oh, yeah, it's all been paid for. She's looking around. What? And all of a sudden she grabs a handful of lottery tickets and she puts them up there. (laughs) Man, I hope I can. You know, but anyway, you just I don't know why I told that stupid story, but that's the opportunity for us to do goodness to people, which is that mercy and that kindness And I would encourage you to find opportunities to do things like that for people. Love, God's love means that God eternally gives of himself to others by seeking their highest good. This is an incredible definition. I added to the last part of it, seeking another's highest good. That's agape love. Let's think through scripture how God always demonstrates his love through giving. Somebody quote John 3, 16. God so loved the world that he what? Gave his only begotten son. Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We can go right through the pages of Scripture and continue to see that. We see in 1 John 4, verse 10, it says, Love is not that we have loved God, but God has loved us and has given us his son as a propitiation for our sins. So all through the pages of scripture, you know what the commonality of love is? Seeking another person's highest good. That's the kind of love that God has for us. And we can love one another that way. 
where we seek another person's highest good. Ephesians 1.5 says that in love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons and daughters. And so the, this communicable attribute of love, God wants us to portray. And it's not just an issue of feeling lovely towards people. It is making a willful choice to put somebody higher than ourselves. That's the character of God. He's done it for us through Christ. Jesus modeled that for us in his life, and he's calling us to do the same. Then we got the next one is holiness. God is separated from sin and devoted to seeking his own honor. The word holiness gives us the word sanctify or sanctification. God is literally separate from all things. When you think of the Old Testament, there are a number of things that are holy, right? We see God is holy. He's completely separate, distinct from all things. Unlike anything, he is set apart. The tabernacle was holy. Remember that? Then in the tabernacle was the what? Holy of holies. Do you know that the utensils were holy, which meant that they were set apart only for the service of God? The showbread was holy. It was set apart only for the service of God. Every person that wrote and scripture down, when they came to the name of God, they would put their regular pen down, grab a new pen, and write the name of God, and then discard that pen because that pen was holy, only used for that. And so what we see in this is that God's holiness is that he's utterly separate. Now, God calls us to be holy as he is holy. In light of that, what does that attribute mean in our own life? If God is separate from all things, and we're to be holy as God is, what does that mean for you and me? I'm sorry? We, we got to be distinctly different from the world. We're set apart from worldliness. We're set apart from sin, we're set apart for God. And that's what holiness means. When I'm talking about my life is to be holy, sometimes we get this impression that I'm to be sinless. Anybody here sinless? Nobody here is sinless. There are some people in this world who think they are and they're false teachers, but nobody's sinless. But that's not what holiness means. Holiness means I'm so separate from the world and separated to God that I am sanctified for him and for his glory. And so as I pursue holiness, then I always have to die to the things around me to go after the things of God. Righteousness. We're going to run out of time. God always acts in accordance to what is right and is himself the final standard for what is right. Righteousness and justice flow together. Righteousness means God must do the right thing. And by doing the right thing, it always brings about justice. And so because God must do the right thing, can God ever wink at sin and not pay and repay or act justly towards sin? Can he ever do that? Would we like him to do that? 
Yeah, but he cannot. And because of his righteousness, he must always do what's right. Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and what? Fall short of the glory of God. Say, all have sinned. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is what? Death. The soul that sins, it must die. And so God's righteousness requires that he does the right thing for, because of sin. And that brings punishment. And by doing that, he has acted justly. Now, if God did not act righteously, then justice would not be fulfilled. We see in the Old Testament a picture of this, that when a person sinned, the sacrificial system temporarily covered them for their sin. They would go and lay their hands on a lamb, the symbolizing the sin leaving from them to that lamb, and then the priest would slit the lamb's throat, and the lamb would die, the blood would be split, shed, and then that sin what happened, a righteous deed took place. Somebody had to die for the sin. The lamb died. There was temporary covering for the person who sinned. Can you imagine living in a world like that where every year and every month you had to go and offer a lamb and a sacrifice for a temporary covering because of your sin? And then Jesus comes. And what does God do? The only way that he could permanently forgive sin of humanity is it had to be paid for. And they had to be the perfect sacrifice. And so Jesus, the perfect, spotless Lamb of God, God acted righteously. Because of sin, someone had to die. And the Father in, in Isaiah, I mean, I'm sorry, yeah, Isaiah 53 says, the Father was pleased to crush his son. Peter says it was by the predetermined plan of God that Jesus went to the cross. And so the father acted righteously by his son dying for our sins. And by doing that, justice was served. He became the propitiation for our sin, which means he satisfied the wrath of God. And because it was paid, then forgiveness can be offered. And it's all following his righteousness and his justice. Because if he didn't do it, he would not be just and he would not be righteous. And therefore, he would be violating his own character. And so the picture of the cross is a beautiful picture of this righteousness and justice. Jealousy. How many of you think that that, when you think of the term jealousy, you think of it as being negative? Yeah. Most of us have a hard time thinking that God is a jealous God. It means that God continually seeks to protect his own honor. God is a jealous God. Here's why we have a hard time with jealousy. We're jealous for the wrong things, aren't we? We're always jealous for the wrong things. We're jealous because maybe somebody else has something we don't have, or they've got the position we didn't get, or they're more skillful than us, or they look better than us, and we're jealous because we feel like they've got an edge on us in some way. God is never jealous of the wrong thing. Is God ever jealous of anybody? Is there anybody who can compare with God? God's not jealous because somebody's wiser than him. He's not jealous because somebody's got more than he does. No, you see, God is jealous for the right thing. And what is God jealous for? His own name, his own character, his own goodness, his own attributes. So here's the thing. God is always jealous for the right thing, which is himself. And he wants to protect his own character. 
and he's jealous for that. Now, if we're to be jealous as God is jealous, what are some of the things that we should rightly be jealous for? What are the things we should rightly be jealous for? Okay, I should be jealous of God's honor in my life, so I'm going to protect that in a way that I'm going to do things that honor him. What is Jealous for knowledge? Yes. I want to know God more, and I want to have God show me and teach me, so I'm going to be jealous to protect discipline for knowing him. What else? For the truth of his word. For the gospel. For others. Justice. Mercy. If I'm jealous for the right things, then I'm following the heart of the Father. How about wrath? Nobody talks about wrath anymore. God's wrath is his fixed hatred towards sin. It never changes. No matter what the culture does, no matter what happens, his fixed anger, hatred towards sin. God hates all sin, and and all sin is an offense to God. Now, let me just say this. Not all sin carries the same consequences in life, okay, but it's all offense to God, whether it's a small lie or it's an adulterous relationship. It's all offensive to him. There might be different consequences here because of that. I can tell a little lie maybe nobody else knows about but God, but it's still offensive to him. There's just different consequences and impacts of my life. So if God is a God of wrath, and that's a communicable attribute, let me say this. God does not just hate sin. (laughs) Read Psalm 5. God hates sinners. God doesn't send sin to hell. Sinners go to hell. And here's the thing that we have a hard time comprehending sometimes, that God would hate sinners. Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have what? Hated. Why? Because he held in contempt the blessings and offended God. And the thing that we have to understand is the cross is the perfect picture of God's hatred and his love and his righteousness and his justice. And so we see there his hatred for sin and sinners and that Jesus died to redeem sinners that they might be sons and daughters of God. So there's the picture that we got to see about wrath. Now, how does that become a communicable attribute to us? Obviously, we're not to hate people. We're not to hate people. But if God hates sin... Shouldn't I hate sin? Shouldn't I despise the things that God hates? Shouldn't I have a fixed attitude towards sin regardless of what the culture says? Regardless to whether a family member of mine may begin living like the culture? Regardless of what happens... We are to stay steady to what the things that God hates, we hate. Let's go real quick. The attributes of purpose, his will, his will. 
God approves and determines to bring about every action necessary for the existence and activity of himself and all creation. Okay, here's a picture that we see. When it comes to God's will, we can break them down into four areas. There's God's general will. Ephesians 1.11, God works and directs all things after the counsel of his good pleasure. We find the general will of God is that he is constantly working out his own plan in nature and in humanity. Then there's the revealed will of God. And we see that laid out in Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29. You remember what that says. It says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do them. And so the revealed will of God is, is his, his will revealed to us in the Scripture. And this is for every single believer. Every one of us has the Word of God, and so what we do is we walk accordingly to the truth of that, and I'm called to obey what God reveals to me. The things in Scripture are for every believer, and we are to walk obediently. That's the revealed will of God. Then there's the personal will. This was not in your notes, but I've added this because there are times that God personally has a specific will for your life. Now, let me challenge you in this, and I always say this. So many people say, I just wish I knew God's will for my life. I wish I... Well, you do. He has revealed His will in the way you should live your life as a believer. And it's everyday obedience to him. That is God's will for you. The reason many of us can't discover what our personal will is for our life is because we're not living the revealed will. And until I live obediently the things I know that God wants me to do, I'm never going to learn the specific areas that God might have for me in certain areas. And so that revealed will has to take precedence over that personal will. And there's a secret will. The secret will, those are the things that God never reveals to humanity until they happen. 9-11. Is that kind of a secret will? God knew it was going to happen, but he never revealed that to humanity until it happened. And we can go through all the histories, earthquakes and disasters and all kinds of things like that. That's the secret will of God. And so we're like God in the sense that we have a will. But God always wants our will to line up with his will. And then there's the issue of omnipotence. God is able to do all of his holy will. Is there anything God can't do? Are you sure about that? Is there anything God can't do? What would you say? Okay. God can't violate his own character, can he? Now, there's nothing God cannot do as long as it is keeping with his nature. God's not going to sin, okay? The scripture says that God tempts no man. God does not lie. He doesn't do those things. But God's power is always bound within his character. And within his character and his power, there's nothing he can't do. Somebody raised the question, can God make a rock that he can't even lift? C.S. Lewis says, foolishness is foolishness, whether you're talking about a rock or God, because there's nothing he cannot do. Now, let's look at the last one. Summary attributes, his perfection. God completely possesses all excellent qualities and lacks no part of any qualities that would be desirable for him. If God could grow in any aspect of his being, he wouldn't be perfect. God cannot improve because he's perfect, and he cannot be less than what he is because he's perfect. Now, how does that work out for us? Can you and I ever achieve perfection? No. But here's what we can pursue. Excellence. 
Jeremiah says this, Cursed is the man who does the Lord's work negligently. While we can't pursue perfection, we can pursue excellence. We can have moral excellence that reflects the heart of God. We can have relational excellence that reflects the heart of God. We can have, I don't know, any kind of excellence that we should pursue. It should be living with that kind of excellence for the glory of God. Blessedness. God delights fully in himself and in all that reflects his character. God, God is blessed by himself. <laughs> Isn't that cool? Now, sometimes we like to think we're all that, but we're not. But here's the thing that we can know, that because God delights in himself, he also delights in creation. He delights in everything he does, and he delights in those who belong to him. So what does that mean for us? Here's what that means. I should delight in him. I should delight in the creation that he's made around me. Here's a hard one. I should delight in the person I am in his grace. Have you ever wished you had somebody else's talent? Have you ever said, I wish I was more like that believer? Or I wish I could do that? Man, I always wish I could sing. Man, being a singing preacher, that would be the bomb, man. I'm telling you. But uh, so I've heard a guy that was a great singer. He started preaching a bad sermon. He could get out of a bad sermon with a good song. Man, for me, it would go from bad to worse. And, but, but here's the thing. Sometimes we're not content in even how God's made us. And we're home, wanting to be somebody else. And God is just saying, I, I, listen, I delight in who you are. Walk in my grace and let me make you the person I want you to be. And we can rejoice in that. Beauty, God is the sum of all desirable qualities. Just simply means that he is beautiful. There's nothing about him that he's lacking, and there's nothing about him that is not desirable. David says, oh, to inquire of the Lord, and to, in Psalm 27, and to bask in his beauty and his holiness. Now, here's what I want to leave you with tonight. The most humbling thing that I have seen in all of these as I study this week is this. God delights to share his glorious attributes with us. This is what it means to be created in his image and to be hidden in Christ. That the attributes of God and his greatness and the communicable attributes are God's way of showing us a picture of who he is. And we can never attain to that, not here or even in eternity. But his heart for you and me is that we would walk in his character. And you have the ability to do that as a child of God because you've got the Spirit of God living in you. And he has given to us the fruit of the Spirit. What is the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Good job. The first three have to do with my relationship with God. Love, joy, peace. Patience, kindness, goodness has to do with my relationship with others. 
Faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control has to do with my relationship with me. And so the fruit of the Spirit is what the Holy Spirit gives us to walk in the communicable attributes of God. Now, the goal is for us to see more deeply who God is. But for the children of God, the goal is for us to walk like him. The scripture says, imitate God. That means mimic in the Greek, that we are to be imitators of him. So as we walk, I want to encourage us that these attributes are something that can change your thinking about him. And remember this, that you can never exaggerate the greatness of God. Never. Now, you can exaggerate your own greatness, which would be a downfall, but you cannot exaggerate the greatness of God. So here's what I want us to do. As we've walked through these and as you poured through that, my goal tonight is just to encourage you to grab hold of these and to think on these. How, here's the question, I gotta, I gotta close with this. How do you pray to God in your mind in a way that would keep you from forming a false image of who he is? How do you pray without forming a false image of who God is? Somebody want to answer that? The Lord's Prayer? Okay. Quoting Scripture? Well, the Lord's Prayer is great when you talk about, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, that will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We can go through all of that, but somebody else. How do you pray to keep yourself from forming a false image in your mind of God? Our Father in heaven. It's interesting, Jesus only called in his prayers God Father except for one time when he was on a cross. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Other than that, every other time, it's Father. Somebody else said something? Okay. Yep. Pray in the name of Jesus, in the power of the Holy Spirit. Let me just give you a real simple thing that you can do. When you pray, don't think of an image that your mind wants to go through. Pray the attributes of God. And when you pray the attributes of God, you're focusing on the character of God constantly. Father, thank you for your kindness and the way that your kindness leads us to repentance. Father, thank you for your mercy. And you just pour out the attribute. Thank you that you are unchangeable. You know what that does? That keeps me from conjuring up some image that can lead me to some false worship. But when I'm praying in line of the very character and the nature of God, the character itself defines who he is. And I always focus on that. So I want to encourage you to let that be something that as you go through this week, modeling and demonstrating that. Now, we're out of time, but are there any questions? From your reading, anything that you might say, if I don't know, Vic is in the back. He's a scientist. He'll be able to answer any question that you have. Any questions?
Okay. Well, we have completed what we've dealt with, the incommunicable and the communicable. Do you feel like you have a grasp on that now? Okay. We'll never fully understand it, but one of the things that will do is help us to rethink the nature and the character of our God. All right, let's pray. Father, we do thank you that those things that you have revealed to us, you desire for us to know that we might know you. And Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus who paid the perfect price on the cross that we might receive your grace instead of wrath. And Father, as we walk through this this week and we continue to go through this week, remind us daily of these attributes. And Father, how you want us to display them in our own lives. Father, we know that we're human that we're broken, that the effects of a broken world are around us, but we thank you that in Christ we are hidden away and we are yours. Protect us, guide us, in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Thank you for being here tonight. We hope that this podcast was a blessing to you and that you grew in your knowledge of God. If you liked this podcast, I encourage you to share it with your friends and your family on social media so that others can hear the truth of God's word. Till next time, 